Welcome back to the Pregnantish Podcast, where we cover how so many modern families are created with help and the realities of infertility, which is estimated to touch the lives of at least one in eight, and pregnancy loss, which is reported to affect one in four. Of course, these are the numbers that are captured. Today's episode on grief and resilience is presented by us here at Pregnantish, the first and only media site that helps people navigate the complexities of infertility and modern family building and tell their stories. For more, follow us at Pregnanish on social and find us online at pregnanish.com. Rebecca Sofer's life changed overnight in 2006 when her mom died in a car accident and her dad died of a heart attack on a business trip just a few years later. She never expected to be living without her parents in her early 30s, navigating jobs, relationships, and life. From this isolating and heartbreaking experience, Rebecca launched a platform that she desperately craved, Modern Loss, a space and community for real talk around grief and grieving. She knew that she wasn't alone in wanting an approach to grief that wasn't full of platitudes and toxic positivity or band-aid solutions, but one that honored not only how people mourned and remembered loved ones, but that allowed them to process these life-defining moments in whatever way made sense for them. It was definitely from that sense of isolation and solitude that I felt. And I think that you know, no matter what, grief is a solitary experience because nobody has the relationship that you have with your person, not even your sibling with a parent. I mean, everybody's dynamic is totally different. We all have different individual memories and even collective memories of our person or the the people we thought we would know and never got to. But I think beyond that, I was really surprised by how so many people just felt like they couldn't talk about it. Rebecca has authored two books on grief, including her newest, The Modern Loss Handbook, an interactive guide to moving through grief and building your resilience, which has already been praised by popular personalities like Gail King and Stephen Colbert. And the New York Times has supported her mission of, quote, redefining mourning, which has allowed countless people to find comfort during their most challenging times. And I have to add that Rebecca is also a dear friend of mine and pregnant-ish, and someone whose humor and heart wisdom brings so much to my life. So I'm so happy that our audience here gets to meet you, Rebecca, and I can share your wisdom and your voice with them. Welcome to the Pregnant-ish Podcast. Andrea, I love that I'm here today with you. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it's amazing because we met at a media event in New York, probably just a few short years after. Oh my gosh. Yeah, after your parents died. I know, isn't that crazy? That's crazy. We did. I actually remember what you were wearing. You do? I don't remember. Yeah, what was I wearing? You were wearing this like beautiful <laughs> sundress. And wow. I remember because I remember <laughs> I was wearing a beautiful sundress and I didn't have kids yet and I was all skinny and oh my gosh you, you still, yeah I remember you still, thinking like who's this gorgeous woman she's so cool I, I thought the same and you know what really struck me about you Rebecca when we met not only were we fellow journalists and you know instantly were 
like in love instantly. But um, you had a background, as so many of my friends do, in comedy, which I think for people who follow you now, they may have no idea about that. So can you talk about, you know, when we met, what were you doing before Modern Loss? Because I think that's actually important to how this platform came to be eventually. What was I doing? I... (laughs) I don't know. We're in like the third year of COVID. I don't have a lot of memory from from before this pandemic. But what was I doing? I mean, I was trying to carve out a career that resembled journalism in some way. I went to Columbia Journalism School. From there, I worked at the Colbert Report because I knew that I was having a lot of trouble keeping my my voice and my biases out of my my pieces and also like some of my humor. It was really, I just felt like political satire was was a good field for me because it was so journalistic and it allowed you to find levity in really hard things. And so I was working for Stephen for a few years and then had left to do my own thing. I was doing a lot of freelance writing and producing for different clients while I figured out what like my greater picture looked like. But when my mom died, yeah, I was working for a daily comedy show at the Colbert Report. And uh, that was weird. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine how weird and, and intense and unexpected that was and how your life literally did change overnight, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of us understand what these the, the one instant to the next feeling of change is now because of you know, all of this uncertainty and fear and sadness that we've been living in over the last couple of years. But for me, yeah, it was a new feeling of kind of thinking that I understood what the world looked like. And then one minute later, not understanding anything at all anymore, like not understanding how different pieces fit together or how I fit into the the planet, really, without my mom, without you know, my best friend with my, without my mother, you know, who I had expected was going to guide me through a lot of stuff. It was very foreign all of a sudden. It was like I was on this just totally new planet. Well, that's a really good capture of grief, actually, because you're so off your center, right, of what you what you expect and how you expect life moments to unfold and then suddenly the picture looks so different. Is this how you started thinking about redefining grief or working in the field of grief or how did that come out of this? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely from that sense of isolation and solitude that I felt. And I think that, you know, no matter what, grief is a solitary experience because nobody has the relationship that you have with your person, not even your sibling with a parent. I mean, everybody's dynamic is totally different. We all have different individual memories and even collective memories of our person or the the people we thought we would know and never got to. But I think beyond that, I was really surprised by how so many people just felt like they couldn't talk about it. I think I was really surprised by how many people I found around me were so uncomfortable and awkward just talking about it with me and how many people kind of tried to make it something that they went out of their way not to mention to me and how many friends 
looked like they were scrambling to figure out how to support me and didn't really know how because I also didn't know what I needed for myself. And eventually I realized that all of this discomfort was stemming from the fact that we just do a really crappy job of talking about this. And if we only did a better job and normalized it in just casual conversation, just like we talk about all the other crap in the news, then we might make a solitary experience at the very least feel a little less isolating. And that can only help all of us because we're all going to go through it. And so that's why I wanted to start modern loss for that reason. Yeah. And I've heard you on your book tour recently when I attended one of your talks talking about how people responded to you almost thinking grief was contagious. What what was yeah. that like? I think that a lot of people do think that grief is contagious. And I I mean I'm I'm not being very I'm not being literal about that. But I do think that when we are confronted with something that's very uncomfortable that is something that isn't unimaginable. We're imagining it and we don't like imagining it. We want to push that thought out of our minds. I mean, I just looked on my newsfeed and saw that there was another, there was a shooting at a camp or an attempted shooting at a camp, a summer camp, a day camp in Texas today. I, I, I pushed it out of my mind because I, I, I literally could not let the emotions in of imagining that scenario because I knew I needed to do an interview, right? But when we do that to ourselves all the time, not just like compartmentalizing so that we could do the task at hand, but when we don't allow ourselves to imagine how hard somebody's experience must be for them, then not only are we not doing them any favors, we're not doing ourselves any favors. Because like I said, eventually this is all going to happen to us. And I think that we feel maybe subconsciously that if we don't learn all the gory details or if we understand that, yeah, they were wearing a seatbelt or, you know, they had some sort of specific fertility issue that explained away all of this, you know, then we can somehow prevent this from happening to ourselves and the people around us. If Mm. we just have the facts and there's an explanation. And so I do feel like on some level, we think that grief is contagious (laughs) because we don't, you know, want to know the uncomfortable details. We don't want to know that sometimes there are just no good explanations for things happening. And we've heard this a lot at Pregnantish, you know, that there's, that you can't explain away or give advice uh, always for grief. Like you just need to hold that space, right? For someone grieving instead of trying to make it better. Yeah. I mean, like, it's like you can never fix anybody's grief. There's no fix for it. There's no vaccine for it. The good news is for, you know, people who are trying to provide meaningful support is that you can tell yourself, oh, I get it. I can't fix their grief. Like maybe that would take a little bit of the pressure off if you didn't feel like that was your job. If you felt like your only job was just to make the person aware that, what they're going through sounds really hard to you and that you're willing to listen to them and you want to listen to them. And like by extension on maybe a practical, tactical standpoint, you know, you're their neighbor and know that they need their lawn mode or you're their friend and you know that they have a kid at home who needs entertaining for an hour so that, you know, your friend can maybe just go scream into the cosmic void or take a shower. Yeah. You know, you can provide little things. The grief and support Rebecca describes that people who are grieving need is something our community at Pregnantish knows all too well. 
This is one reason we started our popular PSA, Pregnant Service Announcement Series, to help people better support us through the tough chapters we may face as we try to build or expand our families. When I created Pregnantish in 2016, there was literally nothing like us, a professionally curated and sourced destination specifically dedicated to infertility education, support, and community that wasn't medical or dry or found on a personal blog, and that wasn't sharing nonstop pictures of babies and pregnant bellies. Today, we are home to the Pregnantish Verified Network, where we gather some of the greatest fertility treatment patient and provider thought leaders to help us fulfill our shared goal of making this process more supportive and less confusing for people who need the help of reproductive treatments to build their families. To follow us and our development as we bring this important work to a more global audience, visit us at pregnantishverified.com and follow and engage with us on social media at Pregnantish. And now... Back to Rebecca. So I wrote a piece for you guys at Modern Loss. I was so grateful you published it called Unmet Love about, you know, the love we feel for people we haven't met yet, including babies, including uh, even those of us in the pregnant audience who have failed embryo transfers and all the hope that's wrapped up in these people we haven't met yet, but we know we love. I know, Rebecca, you get that, but so often people don't. People don't understand, and they'll say things when you go through a miscarriage or a pregnancy loss or a failed IVF transfer, like, well, at least, you know, at least it happened. I'm sure you hear this all the time in grief conversations, but at least you can get pregnant again. At least uh, you hadn't met the baby yet. What advice or thoughts do you have around this? Because it's a big trigger for our audience at Pregnantish. Yeah, I mean... Totally. And it should be because the, the, those are really crappy things to hear. I think that anytime you start a sentence with at least, you should definitely stop yourself in any possible scenario. <laughs> like, you know, like it's, you have to think, uh, am I saying this for myself or am I saying this for the other person? You know, when somebody is grieving, even if they're aware that they can always try and get pregnant again, or they have other children who are perfectly healthy, or they have anything, of course, they're, they're logically aware of that. But in the moment, that doesn't make them feel better. They're grieving something very specific. They're not grieving the fact that they can always at least do this or whatever. They're grieving the fact that something happened and they need to move through that experience. They need to mourn it. They need to examine it and see how they're feeling and figure out what kind of support they need. And if you don't let them do that, if you at least them or assure them of something or say, you know what you should do, then you're really just, you know, you're snuffing them out. You're completely negating their experience and you're not listening to them. You're not giving them an invitation to talk about it. You're making them feel invisible. And then by extension, you might be making them feel like something is totally wrong with them for struggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely true. Because And so often you're unintentionally assigning blame when people are grieving and you're telling them, have you thought of this? Have you tried this? As if it's their fault somehow that something happened or that they're grieving. So in normalizing these grief conversations, how do we teach people to better support us? I mean, that's something we focus on with our pregnant service announcements all the time, our PSAs. But in your words, you know, how do we 
allow the space, uh, again, in this case, for pregnancy loss or failed embryo transfers? How do we best support people? I mean, I think that it's, I think that asking questions is a really nice way to support people. I think like asking a question, an open-ended question, not one that ends in yes or no, like that's a closed question, but an open-ended question, like how are you feeling today or this week? You know, like what, what seems to be hard this week or what, what's, what's going, is there anything going well this week? You know, just like anchoring something within a moment in time so that a question doesn't feel so overwhelming to someone, you know, what's overwhelming is asking, you know, being asked, how are you? And it's like, oh, like, I don't know how to answer that question. You know, mm-hmm. it all feels very like meta, you know, or, um, <laughs> how am I? Like, how are any of us, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that like asking very specific questions, also like asking things like if somebody was pregnant or they had a, you know, an infant die or they had a miscarriage or, you know, a topic pregnancy, they might have had a lot of dreams for this child, you know, and maybe asking them, did you have a name picked out? What was their name? You know, they may not never get to say that name out loud to a lot of people. Ask them those things. It might make them feel nice to say that to somebody, to ask somebody, to to have somebody be their witness to this person who they may never meet or they will never meet, you know, or met very briefly. Yes, there's actually a say their name movement often around conversations of stillbirths and miscarriage. For that reason, you're so right, because few people ask that. And allowing yourself to talk about the love you had for this future person you were hoping to be in your family can bring even joy in your sadness to a conversation. Yep, I totally agree. And, you know, whenever you feel like you're crossing the line by asking these questions, remember that the other person can just say, you know, I don't feel like talking about it. They're probably not going to take offense to the fact that you're asking them how they're doing today. You know, they're probably not going to be pissed at you for saying, did you have a name picked out? And if they are then you need to chalk that up to the fact that they're grieving and that people sometimes act a little a little nuts when they're grieving. I did. And that's okay because grief is a completely normal human experience. And it's when, you know, when we're in our deepest grief, it's when we feel like we're being controlled by our emotions. It, it's when we feel like we're in this like nearly wholly uncontrollable situation and we're like little marionettes and grief is pulling at the strings. And making us feel any which way at any given moment. And so, yeah, I mean, if someone snaps at you or gets like maybe like a overly sensitive with you, try and take a breath and give them a break and remind yourself that you really never know the full story of what somebody is going through. You really never know how hard or nuanced anybody's experience really is, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I really do encourage people to speak up rather than not, because someone will always remember the fact that you didn't always. Mm-mm. Oh, yeah, absolutely true. I How do we, you know, I just had this thought when you were talking about, for lack of a better term, grief gifts. Like, what do you <clears throat> get for people, in your opinion, when they're navigating grief and loss? Are there better gifts than others? Is it person-specific? Do you have any thoughts on that? If you know the person well, it can be person specific. Absolutely. Is it your best friend? You know, do you, do you know that they love blowing off steam to running really hard to loud ACDC? 
can you do something with them around that? Can you offer to like go for a run or have a crazy dance party and blast metal, you know, and get it out? Or do you not know them well enough? Maybe they're more of a colleague and you feel like you want to be supportive, but you don't want to, you know, just be too like presumptuous in, in, you know, in, in, in assuming you know them so well, you know, can you send them a seamless gift card or a Grubhub, you know, like a DoorDash gift card that food is never something that someone will complain about receiving. And especially when somebody is in the early days of grief, little things feel so overwhelming, you know? So even having somebody come over and offer to organize your kitchen or like clean your dishes or, you know, like I said earlier, mow your lawn. These are things that like they still need to be done, but they can feel so overwhelming when you're in the deepest, darkest, phases of grief. And so there are a lot of ways that you can be super helpful. And I'm a big fan of like, when you say grief gifts, yeah, I give a lot of gift cards for people to order food. I send a lot of ice cream. I really do. They're like, I, I, I literally send a lot of Jenny's blended <laughs> ice cream, not only because it's delicious, but because, you know, I, <laughs> I have a trauma therapist friend who said sometimes self-care looks like getting the double bacon cheeseburger. I hopefully not every single day, every minute of the day, but I, I, you know, sometimes you just really need to kind of give in to your id, whatever feels right in the moment. And as long as it's not hurting yourself or anyone else, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you nourish yourself in whichever way feels like you need it any given day? It's so true also that what you said, people don't know what they need. So to not put the pressure by asking what do you need and to just make some assumptions, like you said, food may be helpful, a, a hug may be helpful, you know, just making some assumptions based on who the person is. I also think with grief, it's really important for those of us navigating it to know who's in our kind of three to five people. I call them the lifelines from that game show. <laughs> like, who are you going to call? And sometimes those people aren't people that are closest to you. I mean, it might literally be like, I really, my mom recently was sharing that at my uncle's funeral, the rabbi was so uh, illuminating and helpful and supportive. And she would like to reach out to him in the future. So anyone who strikes you as someone being a supportive voice, even if it's not a close connection, can help you, right? It doesn't need to be what, it, what you think it looks like. Absolutely. I would say that some of my closest friends are people who really came out of the woodwork for me after my mom died and then my dad died. My dad died four years after my mom died. And so, yeah, there are people who, through a friend of a friend, heard that my mom died and their dad had died at some point in their, you know, in their life and they knew what it felt like and they invited me for a drink and said things like, hey, like, heard your mom died, totally sucks. If you ever want to drink, I'm here. And I'm like, oh, I've met you one time. Mm. And that's so cool of you. And I got to the point where I started saying yes, because I was so desperate for an invitation to talk about this stuff. And I was also really desperate for like examples of resilience. You know, I wanted to see how other people were moving through this mess because I was young when this happened to me and I didn't understand how I was going to move through it. And so I really appreciated people coming out of the woodwork for me. And honestly, I count them as some of my dearest friends to this day. Mm. Some of my grief friends are some of my, I, I don't really call them my grief friends, but like <laughs> they, they really are, you know, they're the people who get it. And I feel like with those people, they're ones with whom I've been able to arrive 
at like a really serious, like intimate place very quickly because neither of us have, any, we, we, we don't have any bullshit filter or we have a very strong bullshit filter. You know, <laughs> yeah. we, have, we, 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 we don't suffer fools when it comes to this conversation. And we just appreciate the backdrop from behind our conversations. You know, we appreciate that we're both talking to each other against the backdrop of like shit went down in our lives hmm. and we cut each other a break because of that. And we understand that when we're talking about romantic things or work things or friendship things that they're all happening against the backdrop of something pretty hard. And we, we it's like we see each other more clearly that way. Which is, which is the best kind of relationship. And final, final thoughts, uh, resilience, uh, any, any, words, parting words for our audience who are really probably clinging to so much of what you're saying and your wisdom. Any thoughts on resilience for our audience? My thought on resilience is first, like, I'm not a therapist, like FYI, that hasn't been made painfully clear yet. But I believe that resilience is something that we sometimes don't realize that that we have inside us until things get really hard in our lives. And so I think a lot of us are like, oh, I don't think I'm resilient. I don't think I am. Well, sometimes you don't know until the Mm. shit hits the fan, you know? And then you prove to yourself that you actually are quite resilient. And if you don't feel resilient, like you, you struggle a lot, that's actually okay too. Because the good news is that resilience is not something that you're born with a finite amount of. You're born with the capacity for resilience. You're born for resilience building, for strengthening, you know? And if you strengthen that muscle, if you work on building coping mechanisms that help you and build, fill out a toolbox of things that I'm not just saying, go do yoga, like on top of a hill. That doesn't work all the time. In fact, I never do yoga anymore, but maybe you do a little yoga. Does that feel good? Great. You know that you can do that sometimes. Maybe you do some mindfulness. Maybe you have a really good grief counselor. Maybe you have some seriously good friends or a peer-to-peer support group of people who you've never even met before, but you feel like they get it. You know, maybe you have like a, a couple hobbies that lighten your mood or take your mind off of things or some anxiety-reducing exercises. These are all little things that make a very big difference that you can build. And that is resilience building. That is leveling up for yourself when things get really hard. And so, you know, on the flip side, if you don't strengthen that muscle, then it can get atrophied. So I just want to say that I believe in resilience as being something that you really have to work on maintaining. Yeah, consciously. Wow, so many. I knew, you know, our conversation would would help so many people. I know it will. And I just want to thank you so much for being on the Pregnish Podcast and encourage our listeners to buy Rebecca's book, which has been praised all over the place. But I just know you're, you're going to appreciate it so much. Thanks for being here, Rebecca. Thanks, Andrea. I'm so proud of everything that you've done. Likewise. Much love. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Pregnantish Podcast, where we always have real talk about fertility, grief, and life. Until next time.